This is recording number 10756 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the fourth message in the Purpose Behind the Passion series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, March 23, 2008. This message is titled, Lifting the Darkness. So when he proclaimed or read from the prophet Isaiah these um, five things that describe what the Messiah had come to do, um, he was telling us the purpose behind his passion. And restated, they, they go like this. He came to pay the debt. He came to restore what had been lost. He came to unlock the shackles. And these are the, this is the ground we've covered already in this teaching series today. We're going to be talking about the purpose behind the passion being lifting the darkness. He came to lift the darkness. Next week we'll conclude by talking about how he came or why he came to tear down the walls. Now I've asked you to turn to John chapter 8. And we're going to read several verses here uh, that tell a familiar story, but I, I'd like for you to, um, if you are, if you're someone who's hung around uh, uh, Christ followers, or you've been a churchgoer, or read the Bible and encountered this before, I'd like to ask you to try to look at this passage with some fresh eyes. Uh, join me in seeing it uh, in a new way, describing part of the purpose behind our Savior's passion. We're going to begin at verse 2, chapter 8, Gospel of John. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. This happens, what we're reading right here happens at the end of one of the high... Um, celebration or holy days in the Israeli or the Jewish calendar at this time is the at the end of the feast of tabernacles and that's why it says he's coming to the temple again because they've been in the temple every day for a week so he com- he comes back to the to the temple and uh, uh, I want you to notice that there are a lot of people here This is not done off in some corner. They're not hiding away someplace. There's a crowd of people. Verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So the scribes and Pharisees have dragged this woman uh, who knows what state of undress she may have been. They say they've caught her in the very act of adultery. And they bring her to this crowded place in the temple and let, put her before, set her before Jesus. And they have in mind trying to uh, turn the crowd against him. Watch what happens. They say, now Moses in the law, and remember Moses was the one through whom God gave the Israel, uh, Israelite people the Ten Commandments and other regulations that uh, 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 facilitated their life spiritually and um, corporately. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such adulterers should be stoned or put to death by stoning. But what do you say? And here's what they think. They think they've got Jesus trapped. 
If he says, yeah, uh, you know, Moses said that they, these uh, adulterers are, are deserving of uh, uh, paying the ultimate price and being put to death, fire away. Well, he's going to turn off all of these people who have flocked to him because of his message of love and forgiveness. If he doesn't uphold the Mosaic law at this point, then he's going to turn off all of those people who have such, such reverence for the Old Testament scriptures. So they think they have him trapped. And, and this is all about that. Has not, they, you can tell they don't care about this woman at all. And by the way, it is true that the Old Testament scriptures, the Mosaic law, required capital punishment for adulterers. But where's the man? They caught her in the act. It kind of takes two people to do this, right? Where is he? So you can tell that they don't really care about that issue. It's really not about that. It's about trying to stump Jesus, and they think they have him over a barrel. It's not my point this morning, and it's not... uh, Uh, worth taking the time it certainly would be worth doing at another time but not this morning talking about why uh, uh, are the um, the reasons why adultery should not be tolerated or allowed to be uh, you know just uh, uh, embraced by a culture and the fallout and the devastation upon individuals and families and a culture that results when we do but uh, so we'll just set that aside and just note that that was the, the rules uh, according to the law of Moses. Now, verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. We don't know what he was writing in the sand. And uh, there's been lots and lots over the years, over the 2,000 years since this occurred, lots and lots of speculation about what he was writing. It's only speculation we don't know. I like to think that he might have been writing um, some things that described some of the sins of those who were observing, those who had brought this woman. Maybe some things that uh, would begin to convince them or convict them of things that they had done in violation to God's word. I don't know. We don't know. But I think above everything else, it was probably clear that Jesus would not allow himself to gawk at this woman like everybody else was. They had made such a display out of her and he just refused to go there and focused his attention on the ground. Extending her the only measure of respect that anyone was offering this woman that day. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So brilliant, so simple, and yet so brilliant. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, when it says that Jesus was left alone with this woman, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. They're in a public, a very public place. They're in the temple. And during a high season of holy celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, the city is crowded with pilgrims. And the the passage begins by telling us it was in that 
uh, crowded setting that all of this took place. And that was by no mistake. The scribes and Pharisees wanted the maximum attention that could be uh, given to this moment when they think they, they have Jesus over the barrel. So it's the, it's the scribes and Pharisees who have departed. But, and Jesus is there with this woman in the original crowd that had been, been there from the beginning. It's not alone. They aren't, he's not off in some corner. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, Now who's he talking to? He's talking to everybody else who'd been standing around there this whole time watching this scene unfold. And I want you to take note, if you're someone who's familiar with this story and with this passage, that this continues. The flow of the story continues past the point where we just finished reading. Most of the time when we are told the story or investigate it, the story stops right there. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But the story continues. There's one more verse. I am the light of the world, he tells the crowd. He turns to everyone. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Another familiar verse, but often quoted, disconnected from the story to which it belongs. It's clear that Jesus wanted us to know that what had just transpired, this whole messy scene with this woman, this adulterous woman, he wanted us to understand that in context he was showing us something about the difference between light and dark. And that he was the light of the world. And that what he had just done demonstrated part of his ministry, his purpose, his, his uh, mission for coming. He had stood in that synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth and proclaimed from the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah had come to open blind eyes. And Jesus was describing here that he had come to lift the darkness. All right, let's talk about darkness. Because clearly Jesus was not uh, talking about, you know, what it's like when the lights are turned off in a room. He's talking about a a form of uh, spiritual darkness. When he said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. He was talking about a spiritual condition, a spiritual blindness. He said, but if you follow me, you'll have the light of life. So let's talk about darkness. First of all, the cause of, of spiritual darkness. The cause of spiritual darkness is choice. The Bible tells us that we have chosen darkness. And it's interesting. I I was watching recently, my wife and I bought that uh, series of uh, videos uh, called The Planet Earth. How many of you have ever seen those? Um, Two of us anyway. Uh, But uh, you've, you've undoubtedly seen them playing at Costco where they made a big deal about it and everything. But anyway... Uh, a couple of the segments, one was on caves, and so the uh, talks about the environment of life that goes on inside of the ground and the caves of this planet where there is no light, zero light, and yet there's life there. Uh, another segment talked about 
the deep oceans and there are the deep seas and there are creatures that live uh, in places at the at the bottom of the ocean in the deepest parts of our of the oceans of our planet where also again no light penetrates there and they don't have most of those creatures don't have eyes or if they do they're unseeing eyes because they have no need for it there's no, they can't see but they carry on their life they carry on doing what they do feed you know uh, eating dying living all the stuff that creatures do unseen and not seeing and i got to thinking about that and in light of another this may sound odd to you but in light of an, a movie i watched once called the truman show anybody ever seen that the truman show jim carrey is this guy and it's the ultimate reality show his whole life since he was a baby he's lived his life out under the scrutiny of television cameras in a false world his uh his world is under a, a, a constructed dome where the sky is uh, um it's painted or the lighting is changed uh, mechanically where the weather is controlled by outside forces, where the people that he inter- interacts with, his mother and father, his neighbors, the people that he works with, the people who populate this dome, they're all actors. And he doesn't know. He's lived his whole life and he doesn't know it's all fake. The Bible says that we have chosen to live in a world of darkness. But we, we think that it's, it's light. We don't let ourselves know. We don't allow ourselves to realize that it's all a fake. Um, in uh, the Gospel of John, a little bit further uh, back, in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it says this. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. We've chosen this world because we don't want to know that it's all a fake. We like thinking that this place that doesn't uh, confront our our selfishness doesn't confront our uh, wickedness and we get to carry on as though everything is hunky-dory as though we really see when we don't so darkness spiritual darkness is chosen it's a choice but let's talk about the consequences of that choice that we have made as human beings to live our lives out in a climate or an environment of spiritual darkness. The first of those consequences I'd like to explore with you this morning is isolation. Some years ago, I went to visit Alcatraz out there in the San Francisco Bay. And I, I will never forget, some of you have had this experience, I will never forget when they put me and a bunch of the other tourists in a solitary confinement cell and closed the door. And there is no light. And even though you're in this room with all these people, you feel absolutely alone. 
you would never know that anybody else was in that room and, and well, unless of course they'd had garlic for lunch. But um, other than that, you feel isolation because you can't see a thing. And it's interesting how even in this world where there are six billion people, and I don't know about you, but I live on a street with uh, probably 20 other homes just on our little block on both sides of the street. But I know probably four people. We live in a world where we are isolated. And that is part of the whole condition of, of spiritual darkness. We really don't want other people to really know us. Because if we, if we, really, if we really got to know somebody, or if they, if they knew us more specifically, they might discover that we're not what we seem. So darkness, the condition of darkness that surrounds us all is very isolating. There's also an element of insecurity when you live in darkness. When I was a kid, well, actually, until I was in my, my um, mid-20s, I had a terrible fear of the dark. You don't have to talk to me about what it's like to know the terror of insecurity that darkness can breed. I know. And it may sound silly to you that a grown man a married man with three children could not move through a dark room without the lights on, but that was me. I would be frozen in fear. Thank God he has healed me of that. I was just thinking about that last night because I was, I was here late setting things up for today. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a big building. And I, I shut, off, shut off the lights in here and I was walking my way all the way through, all the way through this whole building to the place where you, you have to go out and turn on the... Uh, the alarm and stuff, no lights on, and I wasn't, I wasn't troubled by that at all. But there was a time in my life when I would have, that would have, you'd have had to come and haul me away screaming from the terror that that would have caused me. I know what it's like to feel the insecurity, the fear that comes from living in a dark place. And many of us here today do. Many of the people outside of this room do. They live their lives in a certain kind of terror, not knowing what's going to come or what's going to take place. Am I going to lose my job today? Is that person that I'm living with, are they going to just run off and leave me for someone else? There's lots and lots of that around. Another um, consequence of the spiritual darkness or blindness that we've all chosen is disorientation. How many of you have had the experience of getting out of bed at night and uh, stubbing your toe uh, on something that you didn't realize was, was there? We have this dog that lives at our house, and uh, I am constantly, I'm constantly stepping on this beast in the night. But there's a certain amount of disorientation that comes. You don't really know, um, you know which end is up when you're in a dark place. Pretty soon, you, you just lose track of, of where things are and the, and the uh, dimensions of things. I've lived in my house now for almost two years, but I can get lost in there when it's really dark at night. And my son, I'll never forget, my son was visiting with us. And we had this long hall 
well, I shouldn't say really long, but a significant hallway, but it's very wide. It's probably, I don't know, five feet, six feet wide, and uh, that runs the length of the, where the bedrooms are upstairs. But we have this um, cedar chest, this wooden box that sits in, uh, out in the, or juts out into that hallway from the wall. And, and one, night, one night he was visiting, and I hear this boom, and I hear this, oh! <laughs> And poor guy, he's got this, he has this huge bruise on his thigh where he'd smacked that thing on the way back to his room from the bathroom. And uh, so it's disorienting. The darkness can be disorienting. Another one of the consequences of darkness is deprivation. When you're in a dark place, you can't get to the things that you need. I remember you... you, you um, and, and you miss out on things because just simply you can't see them. I remember one time I was uh, uh, riding my bike along um, a, tr- a creek trail. When I lived in San Jose, there was this really great trail that followed this creek for, for several miles. And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful place. It had a lake at one end and you start off there and then you go to a reservoir on the other end and all along you follow this creek. And it's just a beautiful place. And I was riding my bike and I came along the trail, and I came upon three blind people walking the trail. And they had their, you know, their canes and stuff. And my first thought was, what in the world are they doing out here? And then I realized, well, they're out here for the same reason I'm out here, to enjoy the being out, out of doors and the beauty of this. But then the, my third thought was, how much they're missing. Now, I know, I don't, I don't want to sound, I hope you don't misunderstand me. I, I, I understand... I'm not putting them down. And I also understand they tell me that, you know, people who lose one of their senses, that, uh, are, are, uh, that their other senses tend to compensate that. So I'm sure they were experiencing things out there along the trail that I would miss. But I know this. I know they could not see the beauty that was surrounding them. And they were missing just, they were deprived of this beauty that was all around them because of their blindness. And we, by choosing to live in a world or an environment of spiritual darkness to hide our selfishness and sin, we are missing so much. Finally, hopelessness. Hopelessness. When you're in the dark, you can, if you're, you can be in a situation where you can start to lose hope that, the, that there will ever be light or that the, the dawn will ever come. This is going to sound gross and I apologize for it, especially since we've all just eaten. But there was a time when I was, uh, I was backpacking with my father and my father is this really gung-ho, you know, outdoors guy and uh, I, I never was. <laughs> And, but he, he would take me, God bless him, he would take me on these, you know, uh, outings where we would, you know, he'd strap this thousand pound pack on my back and, and then charge me up the, you know, up Mount Everest and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you know, you'd be so happy and I'd be just, oh, this is so hard and complaining all the way and everything. But when, when I was also younger, you're going to think I was just this really... Weasley kid, you know, I was afraid of the dark and, and everything, but <laughs> but I also when I was a kid, I used to get altitude sickness quite frequently. And my dad, like I said, he would we would never go to a place where you just parked the car and camp by a lake. I mean, you you know, you had to, like I said, charge up the 
the mountain. And so we would end up in these really, you know, high elevation places above the tree line. It looks like the moon. And I could never try to figure out, Dad, why is this, why do you want to come here, you know? Uh, but anyway, he, so I was there and I got altitude sickness very badly. And that was the longest night of my life. I laid there in that sleeping bag, sick as a dog. And I would, you know, we had, we didn't have a tent. We had this plastic thing laid out on the ground, this tarp and our sleeping bags just on this tarp on the ground. And I would, I'd stick, it was freezing cold. I'd stick my head out of the sleeping bag, vomit on the tarp, and then the wind would blow the tarp. (laughs) Vomit, wind, all night. And I honestly, I got to the place where I'm thinking, I'm going to die here. And they're going to find me covered in vomit. And this night will never, ever end. But, you know, there are people, maybe even some in this room, who've come to the place where you've felt pretty hopeless. You know, that the light is never going to come. The dawn is never going to shine. And this dark place that, that you're walking through, there's never going to be any difference to it. And these are all symptoms of the, of the dark place that we have found ourselves. The very conditions that created this scene we read about in John chapter 8. With this woman caught in adultery and those who are trying to use her in this horrific, horrible way. All, uh, all of that transpires in a world of darkness. And after Jesus extends this mercy to this incredible mercy to this woman and grace, he says, notice there's a different way to live. I am the light of the world and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. So let's talk about that for just a few minutes. The light, what is that? First of all, I want you to notice that light is revealing. Light is revealing. He said to her, go and sin no more. He didn't excuse it. He didn't pretend it didn't happen. He called it what it was, sin. Now there's something incredibly freeing about someone telling you like it is. And when the Lord in in such mercy and grace without an ounce of condemnation, neither do I condemn you, he said, looks her in the eye and says, but what you've been involved in is sin. And just tells it to her straight out. So then there's, there's no more excuses, no more hiding, no more trying to figure out a way to cover it up. It's just there and it's named what it is. And the light When Jesus comes into a person's life, when he begins to transform that dark place of a person's life, he's going to tell you the truth. It's revealing. Thank God it's also warming. The light is warming. And he extended to her such mercy, neither do I condemn you. Can't you imagine how that woman must have felt? And she looked into the eyes of the only person among all of that multitude who didn't uh, uh, judge her, who respected her as a person, 
who extended her this love. The light warms. It also cleanses. You know, sunlight and uh, other forms of broadband light has a cleansing um, uh, uh, aspect to it. In fact, they use broadband light to um, cleanse or to uh, uh, deal with bacteria, oral bacteria. I don't know if I have any dentists here this morning that can confirm that, but I read it somewhere. Um, And there are other ways that light is used to sterilize things. And Jesus was extending something so unbelievable to this woman. Now, we read it and we think when he says, go and sin no more, this is how most of us take that. We think that Jesus looks her in the the eye and says, now don't you do that again. That's right. Isn't that what we think? Don't you do that anymore. Go and sin no more. But that's not what was going on here. What was going on here was Jesus liberating her to a life where that was no longer part of it. He was saying to her, now because of me, you can go on from here and not live in that place anymore. Go and sin no more. Enjoy life without that. Go and sin no more. A cleansing. You know, when you get really, uh, maybe none, none of you ever do, but uh, I, I, I say that because I wouldn't want to implement or uh, I wouldn't want to incriminate any of you with what I'm about to say because surely none of you ever perspire or get dirty. But I certainly do. And this week as in, in uh, preparation for all, you know, Easter, knowing that we'd have guests here and stuff, I was out in the parking lot cleaning things, sweeping and, and uh, raking leaves and, you know, using my weed eater and whatnots out there. And I'd come home at night and I was ripe. And uh, I, I needed, I needed that shower. But it felt so good afterwards. And there is, that is, doesn't even come close to describing what it's like to have the one, only one with whom we have to do cleanse you. Extend to you his forgiveness. And it washes over you. And all the shame, all the guilt is gone. And that's what Jesus was extending to this woman. There's two more. Light is also guiding. Guiding. When you're in a dark place and you don't know where you're going or how to get there, the light shows the way. And Jesus said to her, he was also, remember, she's not gone. When he turns to the crowd and says these words in verse 12, where he says, I'm the light of the world, he who follows me. He's talking to her too. But he's also talking to us. He is volunteering to lead the way. If you have ever felt kind of lost in this life, like you're not really quite sure where, you, uh, where you're headed or how to get there, Jesus came to lift the darkness and to show the way. And then finally, illuminating, illuminating. He says, 
I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Not this false, fake, Truman Show kind of world that's really darkness, even though we're pretending that it's light, but real life, real light. That's what Jesus stood in the synagogue on, in Nazareth as he began his ministry to proclaim. He said, I've come to lift the darkness. I want to ask you to stand now. Put your things aside. Stand. And we're gonna, I'm going to read to you a verse of scripture. And then I'm going to have you read it with me. But I'm going to read it first. I want you just to uh, follow along. It's on the on the screen in front of you from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And so, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Let me explain what's being said here. Peter, that's, that's the disciple, the, excuse me, the apostle Peter, He said, we have the prophetic word. That's the Bible. We have the scriptures. We have the prophetic word. But we have it confirmed. If you went and read the verses that precede this one, you would hear him saying, I was there. The stuff that I'm writing to you, I'm I'm not describing some sort of religious, um, mystic, mythical junk. I was there. I was an eyewitness to these things. I saw him. I lived with him. I denied him. I was there. He says, we have this prophetic word, but we also have that word confirmed. And I am one of many who can testify firsthand of having observed his life and ministry. I can tell you that what this says is true. And you ought to listen to us, he says. You do well to heat it as a light that shines in a dark place. This is like a searchlight, a flashlight shining into the dark place of your life. And you ought to pay attention to that, he says. Until. And by saying this, I don't mean we ever get to a place where we don't need the word of God. But he says that the role of the word of God changes at a certain point. No longer is it just a searchlight shining into the dark place of your life. But there comes a place, the until place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Then watch out. Your relationship to the light will never, ever be the same. It won't be something on the outside shining in something from the inside that shines out.